Chapter 2 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. Chapter 2 The Iceberg. The loss of the spars I have named was no great matter nor were we to be intimidated by such weather as was to be expected off Cape Horn. For what sailor entering this icy and temptuous tract of waters but knows that here he must expect to find nature in her most violent moods, crueler and more unreckonable than a madwoman, who one moment looks with a silent sinister sullenness upon you, and the next is shrieking with devilish laughter as she makes as if to spring upon you, but there was an inveteracy in the gale which had driven us down to this part that bore heavily upon our spirits. It was impossible to trim the ballast. We dared not veer so as to bring the ship on the other tack. And the slope of the decks added to the fierce wild motions of the fabric made our situation as unendurable as that of one who should be confined in a cask and sent rolling downhill. It was impossible to light a fire, and we could not therefore address our food or obtain a warm drink. The cold was beyond language severe. The rigging was glazed with ice, and great pendants of the silvery brilliance of crystal hung from the yards, bowsprit and cathedes, whilst the sails were frozen to the hardness of granite, and lay like sheets of iron rolled up in gaskets of steel. We had no means of drying our clothes, nor were we able so to move as by exercise we might keep ourselves warm. Never once did the sun shine to give us the encouragement of his glorious beam. Hour after hour found us amid the same distracting scene. The tall olive-colored seas hurling out their rage in foam as they roared towards us in ranges of dissolving cliffs. The wind screaming and whistling through our gray and frozen rigging. The water washing in floods about our decks, with the ends of the running gear snaking about in the torrent, and the livestock lying drowned and stiff in their coo and pen near the caboose. With helm lashed and yards pointed to the wind, thus we lay, thus we drifted, steadily trending with the send of each giant surge further and deeper into the icy regions of the southwest, helpless, foreboding, disconsolate. It was the night of the fourth day of the month. The crew were forward in the forecastle, and I knew not if any man was on deck saving myself. In truth, there was no place in which a watch could be kept, if it were not in the companion hatch. Such was the violence with which the seas broke over the brig, that it was at the risk of his life a man crawled the distance betwixt the forecastle and the quarter-deck. It had been as thick as mud all day, and now upon this flying gloom of haze, sleet, and spray had descended the blackness of the night. I stood in the companion as in a sentry-box, with my eyes just above the cover. Nothing was to be seen but sheets of ghostly white water sweeping up the blackness of the vessel's lee, or breaking and boiling to windward. It was sheer blind chaos to the sight, and you might have supposed that the brig was in the midst of some enormous vaporous turmoil, so elusive and indefinable, were the shadows of the storm-tormented night, one block of blackness melting into another, with sometimes an extraordinary faintness of light speeding along the dark sky, like to the dim reflection of a lanthorn, flinging its radiance from afar. 
which no doubt must have been the reflection of some particular bright and extensive bed of foam upon a sooty belly on high hanging lower than the other clouds i say you might have thought yourself in the midst of some hellish conflict of vapor but for the substantial thunder of the surges upon the vessel and the shriek of the slung masses of water flying like cannon-balls between the masts after a long and eager look round into the obscurity semi-lucent with froth i went below for a mouthful of spirits and a bite of supper the hour being eight bells in the second dog-watch as we say that is eight o'clock in the evening the captain and the carpenter were in the cabin upon the swing tray over the table were a piece of corned beef some biscuit and a bottle of hollands nothing to be seen i suppose rodney says the captain nothing i answered she looks well up and that's all that can be said i've been hooved to underbear poles more than once in my time said the carpenter but never through so long a stretch i doubt if you'll find many vessels to look up to it as this here laughing mary does the loss of the hamper forward will make her the more weatherly says captain rosy but we're in an ugly part of the globe when bad sailors die they're sent here i reckon the worst nautical sinner can't behoove to long off the horn without coming out of it with a purred soul he must start afresh to deserve further punishment well here's a breeze that can't go on blowing much longer cries the carpenter the place it comes from must give out soon unless a new trade wind's got fixed into a whole gale for this here ocean what southing do you allow our drift will be giving us captain i asked munching a piece of beef all four mile an hour he answered if this goes on i shall look to make some discoveries the antarctic circle won't be far off presently and since you're a scholar rodney i'll leave you to describe what's inside of it though boil me if i don't have the naming of the tallest land for do you see i've a mind to be known after i'm dead and there's nothing like your signature on a mountain to be remembered by he grinned and put his hand out for the bottle and after a pull passed it to the carpenter i guessed by his jocosity that he had already been making somewhat free for although i love a bold face put upon a difficulty ours was a situation in which only a tipsy man could find food for merriment at this instant we were startled by a wild and fearful shout on deck it sounded high above the sweeping and seething of the wind and the hissing of the lashed waters and it penetrated the planks with a note that gave it an inexpressible character of anguish a man washed overboard bawled the carpenter springing to his feet no cried i for my younger and shrewder ear had caught a note in the cry that persuaded me it was not as the carpenter said and in an instant the three of us jumped up the ladder and gained the deck the moment i was in the gale the same affrighted cry rang down along the wind from some man forward for god's sake tumble up before we are upon it what do you see i roared sending my voice trumpet fashion through my hands for as to my own and the sight of captain rosy and the carpenter why it was like being struck blind to come on a sudden out of the lighted cabin into the black night any reply that might have been attempted was choked out by the dive of the brig's head into a sea which furiously flooded her forecastle and came washing aft like milk in the darkness till it was up to our knees see there suddenly roared the carpenter where man where bawled the captain but in this brief time my sight had grown used to the night 
and I saw the object before the carpenter could answer. It lay on our lee beam, but how far off no man could have told in that black thickness. It stood against the darkness and hung out a dim complexion of light, or rather of pallidness, that was not light, not to be described by the pen. It was like a small hill of snow, and looked as snow does, or the foam of the sea in darkness. And it came and went with our soaring and sinking. Ice! I shouted to the captain. I see it, he answered, in a voice that satisfied me. The consternation he was under had settled the fumes of the spirits out of his head. We must drive her clear at all risks. There was no need to call the men. To the second cry that had been raised, by one among them who had come out of the forecastle and seen the berg, they had tumbled up as sailors will when they jump for their lives, and now they came staggering, splashing, crawling aft to us, for the lamp in the cabin made a sheen in the companion hatch, and they could see us as we stood there. Men, cried Captain Rosie, yonder's a gravestone for our carcasses if we are not lively. Cast the helm adrift. We steered by a tiller. Two hands stand by it. Forward, some of ye, and loose the stay foresail, and show the head of it. The fellows hung in the wind. I could not wonder. The bowsprit had been sprung when the jibboom was wrenched from the cap by the fall of the top gallant mast. It still had to bear the weight of the heavy spritsail yard, and the drag of the staysail might carry the spar overboard with the men upon it. Yet it was our best chance, the one sail most speedily released and hoisted, the one that would pay the brig's head off quickest, and the only fragment that promised to stand. Jump! roared the captains in a passion of hurry. Great thunder! Tis close aboard! You'll leave me no sea-room for veering if you delay an instant. Follow me who will, I cried out, and others stand by ready to hoist away. Thus speaking, for there seemed to my mind a surer promise of death and hesitation at this supreme moment than in twenty such risk as laying out on the bowsprit signified, I made for the lee of the weather bulwarks, and blindly hauled myself forward by such pins and gear as came to my hands. A man might spend his life on the ocean, and never have to deal with such a passage as this. It was not the bitter cold only, though perhaps of its full fierceness the wildness of my feelings did not suffer me to be sensible. It was the pouring of volumes of water upon me from over the rail, often tumbling upon my head with such weight as nearly to beat the breath out of my body, and sink me to the deck. It was the frenzy excited in me by the tremendous obligation of dispatch, and my retardment by the washing seas, the violent motions of the brig, the encumbrance of gear and deck furniture adrift and sweeping here and there, and the sense that the vessel might be grinding her bows against the iceberg before I should be able to reach the bowsprit, all this it was that filled me with the kind of madness, by sheer force of which alone I was enabled to reach the forecastle, for had I gone to my duty coldly, without agitation of spirits, my heart must have failed me before I had measured half the length of the brig. I got on to the bowsprit, nearly stifled by the showering of the seas, holding an open knife between my teeth, half dazed by the prodigious motion of the light brig, which, at this extreme end of her, was to be felt to the full height of its extravagance. At every plunge I expected to be buried, and every moment I was prepared to be torn from my hold. It was a fearful time, the falling off of the brig into the trough, and never was I in a hollower and more swelling sea. 
Her falling off, I say, in the act of veering, might end us out of hand by the rolling of a surge over us, big enough to crush the vessel down fathoms out of sight. And then there was that horrible heap of faint whiteness leaping out of the dense blackness of the sky, gathering a more visible sharpness of outline, with every liquid heave that forked us high into the flying night, with shrieking rigging and boiling decks. Commending myself to God, for I was now to let go with my hands, I pulled the knife from my teeth, and feeling for the gaskets or lines which bound the sail to the spar, I cut and hacked as fast as I could ply my arms. In a flash, the gale, whipping into a liberated fold of the canvas, blew the whole sail out. The bowsprit reeled and quivered under me. I danced off it with incredible dispatch, shouting to the men to hoist away. The head of the staysail mounted in thunder, and the slatting of its folds and the thrashing of its sheet was like the rattling of heavy field pieces whisked at full gallop over a stony road. High enough, I bawled, guessing enough was shown, for I could not see. Get a drag upon the sheet, lads, and then aft with you for your lives. Scarce had I left forth my breath in this cry when I heard the blast as of a gun, and knew by that the sail was gone. An instant after, wash came a mountainous sea-shear over the weather bulwarks fair betwixt the force and main rigging. But happily, standing near the fore shrouds, I was holding on with both hands to the topsail halyards, Willis calling to the men, so that being under the rail, which broke the blow of the sea, and holding on too, no mischief befell me. Only that for about twenty seconds I stood in the horrible fury and smother of frothing water, hearing nothing, seeing nothing, with every faculty in me so numbed and dulled by the wet, cold, and horror of our situation, that I knew not whether in that space of time I was in the least degree sensible of what had happened or what might befall. The water leaving the deck, I rallied, though half-drowned, and staggered aft, and found the helm deserted, nor could I see any signs of my companions. I rushed to the tiller, and putting my whole weight and force to it, drove it up to windward, and secured it by a turn of its own rope. For ice or no ice, and for the moment I was so blinded by the wet that I could not see the berg, my madness now was to get the brig before the sea, and out of the trowel, advised by every instinct in me, that such another surge as that which had rolled over her, must send her to the bottom in less time than it would take a man to cry, Oh God! A figure came out of the blackness on the lee side of the deck. Who is that? said he. It was Captain Rosie. I answered. What? Rodney! Alive? cried he. I think I have been struck insensible. Two more figures came crawling aft, then two more. They were the carpenter and three seamen. I cried out, Who was at the helm when that sea was shipped? A man answered, Me, Thomas Jobling. Where's your mate? I asked, and it seemed to me that I was the only man who had his senses full just then. He was washed forward along with me, he replied. Now a fifth man joined us. But before I could question him as to the others, the captain with a scream like an epileptic's cry shrieked, It's all over with us! We are upon it! I looked and perceived the iceberg to be within a musket shot, whence it was clear that it had been closer to us when first sighted. Then the blackness of the night would suffer us to distinguish. In a time like this at sea, events throng so fast they come in a heap. 
and even if the intelligence was not confounded by the uproar and peril, if indeed it were as placid in any time of perfect security, it could not possibly take note of one-tenth that happens. I confess that, for my part, I was very nearly paralyzed by the nearness of the iceberg, and by the cry of the captain, and by the perception that there was nothing to be done. That which I best recollect is the appearance of the mass of ice lying solidly, like a little island upon the seas which roared in creaming waters about it. Every blow of the black and arching surge was reverberated in a dull hollow tremble back to the ear through the hissing flight of the gale. The frozen body was not taller than our mastheads, yet it showed like a mountain hanging over us as the brig was flung swirling into the deep Pacific hollow, leaving us staring upwards out of the instant stagnation of the trow with lips set breathlessly and with dying eyes. It put a kind of film of faint light outside the lines of its own shape, and this served to magnify it, and it showed spectrally in the darkness as though it reflected some visionary light that came neither from the sea nor the sky. These points I recollect, likewise the maddening and maddened motion of our vessel sliding towards it down one midnight declivity to another. All other features were swallowed up in the agony of the time. One monstrous swing the brig gave, like to some doomed creature's last delirious struggle. The bowsprit caught the ice and snapped with the noise of a great tree crackling in fire. I could hear the mast breaking overhead, the crash and blows of spars and yards torn down and striking the hull. Above all, the grating of the vessel, that was now head on to the sea and swept by the billows, broadside on, along the sharp and murderous projections. Two monster seas tumbled over the bows, floated me off my legs, and dashed me against the tiller, to which I clung. I heard no cries. I regained my feet, clinging with a death-grip to the tiller, and, seeing no one near me, tried to holla, to know if any man was, were living, but could not make my voice sound. The fearful grating noise ceased on a sudden, and the faintness of the berg loomed upon the, the starboard bow. We had been hurled clear of it, and were to leeward. But what was our condition? I tried to shout again, but to no purpose, and was in the act of quitting the tiller to go forward, when I was struck over the brow by something from aloft, a block, as I believe, and fell senseless upon the deck. End of chapter 2